Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. So we're going to start in Genesis 33 today. So if you're the kind of person who likes to get uh, ahead, do your homework early, go ahead and turn there, Genesis 33. Um, I'm going to let you guys know, uh, if you have been following us online, we record every message and we post the audio online on Sunday afternoon, along with my notes. And a lot of you have been listening to the podcast, but um, for a while there, towards the beginning of the year, we started recording our messages through video also and posting those online. We don't do the streaming thing, but we do record our services video and audio. Uh, But when the whole Leon County mask mandate happened, um, there weren't a whole lot of parameters uh, for a guy like me to follow on whether I can actually teach you without a mask on. So I decided, okay, we're just not gonna record the service uh, for a little while, the the video. We've been recording the audio. But I've been having conversations with other pastors in town and some other leaders, and it seems like the consensus is that this stage is considered an area that you are not allowed to come onto. Therefore, I don't have to wear my mask while I'm on stage. Most pastors have been preaching without masks. I've been doing it for a long time. So we're gonna resume starting today, back video recording. So the camera is on. And if you do wanna watch this later or share it with somebody, uh, you can definitely go ahead and uh, we're gonna do that. So we're gonna pick up video again today. But I just wanna let you know why there's been a couple uh, weeks over the last months where we haven't been recording video and why we're starting back today. Cool? All right, let's get into it. So we are currently studying, did someone just whistle at me? (laughs) That is highly inappropriate. We are studying Genesis, um, and we're learning about Jacob right now. That's the guy we've kind of been studying for the last couple chapters. He was a born deceiver. He's the kind of guy who manipulated his way through life. Um, Then God saved him and gave him a new identity. And, And in the process of giving him the new identity, we kind of watched that take place last week. Um, What God said Jacob was and who Jacob used to be were kind of at odds. Jacob was this person who liked using manipulation to get his way and God had a different plan and a different identity, was changing Jacob's heart. And those two identities were kind of at a struggle. And that struggle was personified last week in the wrestling that Jacob had. Jacob wrestled with God last week and the purpose of that in um, Genesis 32 was to give us almost like a parable or a visual reference point to help us understand the, the, the wrestle that's taking place inside of our hearts. Inside our human hearts, just like inside of Jacob, there is who you were and who God is telling you you need to be. And those are, those are at odds. Those don't jive, they don't get along. There is a constant wrestling match between what you want and who you were and who God says you are now and the obedience you're supposed to walk in. And so that wrestling match we saw in the life of Jacob. Now the wrestling match ended at the end of Genesis 32, but the wrestling in Jacob's heart didn't end. Um, We're gonna see how that kind of plays out as we move forward, because in the wrestling match, God told Jacob, you're a new person and gave him a new identity, but he wasn't necessarily, uh, he didn't respond to that right away. So we're picking up today in Genesis 33, right after the wrestling match. Um, Jacob is going to confront his brother Esau, um, and that's where we're gonna pick up the story. So if you have your Bibles, go to Genesis 33. We're gonna start in verse one. We'll read a little bit, talk a little bit. So 
So Genesis 33.1 says, and Jacob lifted up his eyes, so assuming this is the next morning after the wrestling match, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and pay attention to how he did this. So he put the servants with their children in the front. Then he put Leah and her children. Leah was the older sister that he didn't want to marry, but he got conned into marrying. And then he put Rachel and Joseph, his favorite, last of all. And he himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. So I want you to picture what's happening here. Esau is approaching with 400 men. And Jacob's not really sure how Esau is going to respond. So what he does is he puts himself out front, but right behind him he puts the servants and then the wife and the children he's not really fond of and then his favorite wife and his favorite child in the very, very back. Why would you do that? Because if these 400 guys start chasing you with swords, you've got your favorite family in the back that gives them enough time to escape. So this is interesting because what we're seeing inside of Jacob is that while he is changing on some fronts, this change is a process and it was continuing to be a struggle for him. And it shows us that there are some areas in your life that God can attack and change and transform uh, and other areas because of your ignorance or your, your stubbornness can be left completely unchanged. This is a perfect example. Jacob treated Rachel and Leah and his kids differently. Now, this was a learned experience or learned um, behavior that Jacob picked up from his parents, because if you remember uh, Jacob's parents, um, Isaac had a favorite. Um, Jacob was his mom's favorite. So Jacob grew up in a house watching his parents pick favorites. The whole reason why he had to run away was because his mom uh, put together some kind of manipulative plan for him to steal the birthright from his brother. So he kind of grew up with this, but if, and, and that's one thing, okay, you kind of grew up with this behavior, so it's learned behavior, you've got to kind of get over it, but we would expect as the audience that if we're reading Jacob's life and we see the wrestling match, okay, God's changing you, he gives you a new identity, we want to see some of the fruit of that, right? How about um, you're starting to love your family? That seems like a fair uh, fruit that would grow. You love God? Okay, cool. How do you treat your family? Well, I really love this one. These three don't get me started, right? That doesn't seem kind of to jive with a man who loves God that kind of he picks favorites. This is my favorite wife. Why do you have more than one? I'm not seeing how these kind of blend together. So we're seeing in Jacob's life that there is some things that are out of balance. And so even though he has a new name, then we would confront Jacob and say, oh, you got a new name, man. That's, that's awesome. You wrestled with God. You got this new identity. Um, uh, are you living it? Are you taking what God gave you? Is he, what he said to you? Are you doing something different with it? Well, the answer from just the first three verses of 33 is no. He's not doing anything with it. So the question we have as the audience is why? And that why should kind of resonate in our heart. Why would a man who had such a profound experience not change? Because isn't experience what we're pushing as a church? The church in America? I mean, a lot of churches call the Sunday morning gathering an experience. 
The argument being, if we could just ha- get you to an experience, we get you a conference, we get you to show up on Sunday morning, something profound is going to happen to you and therefore you'll be changed. The problem is that biblically that's not true. Just because you have an experience doesn't mean necessarily that things change. Things can change after you're confronted with Christ, but what is required is obedience. When God gives you a new name and he saves you, what is then required as a response from you is obedience. I think Jesus said it the best way in John 14, 15, when he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus, I love you, okay? Do you obey me? I love you, right? That's our attitude, that's our posture. Rebirth, which is what Jesus described when he's talking to you know, people just ex- explaining what salvation is. He's like, you have to be born again. So this concept of rebirth, salvation, new identity, all these concepts are the same thing. What they should do inside of us is produce obedience. They're not an event in and of itself. It's not an experience in and of itself. It should produce something in you and that thing should be obedience. It should be surrender. So God called Jacob Israel, but Jacob is still acting like Jacob. Let me give you some more examples. We're going to continue reading verse four. It says, Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. That's not the experience that we were expecting. But this is awesome. Esau apparently has forgiven Jacob. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw that the women and the children, he said, who are all these with you? And Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Oh, interesting. So you used to be the guy who stole his birthright. You thought you were better than your brother. Now you're calling your brother, you are his servant. And the, servant drew, the servants drew near they, and their children bowed down. And likewise, Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. And Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? So he's talking about the 400 sheep that Jacob had sent out ahead of time the night before to meet Esau. And he said, well, I sent that stuff out to find favor in the sight of my Lord. And Esau said, I've had... I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. But Jacob said, no, please. If I found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I've seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. That's important. We'll come back to it. You've accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and Esau eventually took it. Verse 12 says, then Esau said, let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, oh, my Lord knows that my children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, the place of my children until I come to the Lord, until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, okay, leave me with leave me, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. So Esau went to Seir, which is a mountain in Jordan. So if you're looking at a map today, you've got Israel and immediately to the right is this country called Jordan. This Seir is a mountain in Jordan. But Jacob journeyed to Sukkah, 
That's interesting. That's not what he said he was going to do. And then he built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Sukkah. And then he didn't just stop at Sukkah. Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram, which is where he came from. That's where he met all his wives. And he camped before the city and from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, from Shechem's father, he bought 400 piece, bought a 400 pieces of money, the piece of this land on which he had pitched his tent. And there he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. That name in Hebrew means the mighty God is the God of Israel. Now a lot has taken place, so let's back up and kind of dissect this. Jacob and Esau are reunited, and Esau is not angry. That's good news. The question we should ask as the reader is, why is Esau not angry? He should be. Jacob stole things from him twice, and then skipped town. But Esau is not angry, and I would argue the reason why is because of the prayer that Jacob prayed in Genesis 32. Jacob had no power over his brother Esau. He could not change his brother's attitude, but God could. So Jacob brought a matter that was not within his control to God, and God changed Esau's heart because God had power over Esau's heart and softened it. This, for us, is an invitation to pray. Look, there are tons of things in your life that are out of your control. And rather than build crafty plans that you're sure are gonna work, how about you submit to the Lord before you build the plans? Because chances are he's got a better plan than anything you would come up with in the first place. The principle we learned from Jacob and Esau is that Jacob did this right. He came to the Lord and he prayed because he knew this was out of his control. So when things are out of your control, and I would argue things that are in your control should be first submitted to God because he is the one who has the power over the human heart and has worked all things together for the good and you don't have that power. So on your best day, your plans are lousy. But his are amazing. And so we should submit to his as the first opportunity. The first moment we get, all right, things are starting to spiral, Lord. Now that seems cheesy, right? That's like the Christian answer to everything. Well, why don't you pray? Well, the reason why we pray is because the act of praying is a declaration of faith. It is an act that says, I am not in control and I need outside influence. I need something from the outside to get involved because I am powerless. And that's the reason why we are the most powerful when we are the most powerless. It's because when he is elevated the highest, it is when we are lowered the lowest. So prayer is the act of confessing, I can't do this, please dad. That's why it's so beautiful. And that's why we should do it first. Now, the next thing that Jacob brings up, aside from an invitation to pray, is this confession that he says, I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. Now, Jacob might be blowing smoke here based off of what he does next, and I'll get to that in a minute, but the truth is still there. It's written all throughout scripture. People are image bearers of God. We saw this all the way back at the beginning of Genesis, and we're going to see it all the way through the Bible 
as a whole. Seeing other people face to face in a spiritual sense should remind us of God and drive us to worship. Picture every person in the world like a mirror pointed at a 45 degree angle. And when you look at them, the immediate thing that draws your attention is upwards. Now, through sin, what happened in the garden, those mirrors have been flipped and the desire for all of us is to look at ourselves, to seek our own desires, to make our own self happy. But what happens in salvation, what Christ did is the the mirror flips back and what Christ does through us is use us again as image bearers, the way we were created to reflect the glory of God in the world. And that is why it is so important and a command in the New Testament for us to do what we're doing today, gathering in person. There is no substitute for the people of God gathering together face to face because it is an act of faith when we see each other to fix our eyes on Christ. That's why this is important. This is why being a part of a local church is important. This is why gathering in person is important. This is why just getting to a place where your norm for church is sitting on your couch and watching some megastar pastor preach a crafted word that was sat in, you know, in a boardroom around and like seven guys had their hands in on it and they crafted it just the perfect way so that when it was presented and declared, it was, it was, it was more like an inspirational talk than a teaching of the word of God. And you, you say, well, that's my church. Look, I understand if you're sick, if you're at home, you want to be fed the word of God, I have no issues with that. But there is a big issue if that's your church, because that's not church. What you do when you submit to a television rather than a group of people in person and a pastor who knows your name and knows your kids' names and loves you and texts you and calls you during the week, not just the pastor, but everybody within the church, what you're surrendering in that is this thing called accountability. See, when you're in a group of people, you're surrendering and submitting to each other and people get in your business and they know you and they see your bad sides. And it's a challenge to us to love you when we get to know you. So we grow. But also, it is a humbling experience for you because you have to open up and submit to other people, and people see the junk, and it challenges you to change. It reminds you, I can't just stay here and be okay with this. I have to grow. That's the beauty of the local church, and that's why Christ tells us that we should be a part of a local church. That's why the New Testament is filled. And Paul talks about these commands. We're supposed to be together. We're not supposed to forsake this gathering. This is a good thing. This is a command. This is something we're supposed to obey. So if Christ calls you new and gives you a new name, a new identity, one of the ways you obey is getting plugged into a local church so you can grow. You follow? All of that is wrapped up in Jacob saying, when I see your face, It's like seeing the face of God. Now, Jacob seems humble, but let's follow what he did to his brother. So it's easy to get lost in like verses 12 through 20. So let me me paraphrase it for you. Jacob and Esau meet. They have this reunion. And Esau says, look, I'm taking my family to this mountain over here, Seir. Why don't you follow us? We're family. Let's live together. 
So Jacob says, well, uh, um, you know, my, my, my flock is kind of worn out from the journey. So I tell you what, we're going we're gonna to kind of stay behind. You guys go on ahead and we'll be right behind you. Esau's like, okay, cool. So Esau and his family head off. And as soon as Esau's like over the horizon and disappeared, Jacob turns around and goes the opposite direction. And he goes to this town called Sukkah. Jacob had no intention of ever following his brother to Seir. So Jacob lied to his brother again. Now, if you're envisioning like a map of this area, if you look at a map today, you know, you've got like Israel here. There's water this way. You've got like the Dead Sea down here. You've got the Sea of Galilee up here. Um, Halfway between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea are these two cities. There's Shechem, right, right here, right, almost like right, or there's Sukkah, sorry, there's Sukkah right below the Sea of Galilee, and to the west um, would have been um, Shechem, and that's where they ended up. So if you look at the map, you've got uh, Shechem, Sukkah, and Seir, almost kind of in a straight line, okay, and split like right around where the Jordan River would be. So Esau and his family, they go east, Jacob says, we're right behind you, and then he goes west, and he settles in Sukkah. Now, what's interesting about settling in Sukkah is that's not where God told him to be. He settles in Sukkah, and he builds some booths, and then he goes even farther west, and he builds, um, he buys land, and he builds this great temple. And this is awesome, or not a temple, but an altar. Um, This altar is called the Mighty God is the God of Israel. Now, I say that where he ended up in Shechem is not where he wanted to be, but that only makes sense if you go in a flashback to like Genesis 28. So picture this like you're watching this show on television. At this point, we're going to do a cut scene, and we're going to go back to that uh, moment where Jacob first left home in Genesis 28-ish, and he has this vision while he's sleeping. You remember when his head, he used a pillow for a rock? like someone who's never slept before, he uses a, pillow, a rock for a pillow, and he's sleeping and he has this vision, and in the vision, this ladder comes down, right? And angels are going up and down, and God speaks to Jacob, and he says, hey, this land that you're on, this is the land I'm gonna give you. So when everything's done, when you're finding your wives, you're gonna come home, here's where you're gonna come home to, because this is the land I'm gonna give you. And he wakes up from the dream, he's like, man, God's here. And I'm going to follow him if he's as faithful as he says he's going to be when he comes home. So I'm going to obey him. I'm going to come back here to this place, which I'm now calling Bethel. I'm going to come back to Bethel, and God's going to give me this land, and this is where I'm going to raise my family. Well, is Shechem Bethel? No. Mm Mm-mm. Shechem is north of Bethel by about 30 miles. So this is my argument. We see Jacob not really loving his family like he's supposed to. He's lying to his brother about where he's headed. He buys land in a town that God didn't tell him to go to. God told him to go to one place, and he didn't. He went somewhere else, and he bought land, and he built an altar there. Now, congratulations for building an altar, but the altar's in the wrong town. This would be the equivalent of, of like a person doing something great for God while you know you're sinning. Like, oh man, God brought me this wonderful woman, but I've got to be in an adulterous relationship to be with her. Like, those, those don't even, not even the same sport. Like, not, but Jacob is, he's reconciled his mind. No, this is cool. This is good. I'm following what God's, but you're not in the right town. You're lying to your family. You're not even loving half your kids. 
There's issues going on. Jacob had this powerful experience with God, but he wasn't walking in obedience. He was not loving his family well. He was disobeying God. He was lying to his brother. And I'm bringing this up because this posture is going to put his family in harm's way. I'm going to just slow down just a little bit here. Because we're about to read Genesis 34, and I'm, I would bet money that most of you have never heard this chapter taught on in church. Because what's about to happen is Jacob moves his family to Shechem, and within the first couple verses of chapter 34, Jacob's only daughter, Dinah, is going to be sexually assaulted by the men of the city. Well, one, the prince of the city. Jacob's only daughter is gonna be raped by the prince of this city. Now, as difficult as this is, but how we're not gonna shy away from it, there's something really important that I want us to pull away and understand as we're reading this, okay? Jacob was walking in disobedience. He wasn't where God wanted him to be. He wasn't doing what God wanted him to do. He was ignoring the commands of God. He was disobeying God. He was walking in disobedience. Now, sometimes disobedience has explicit consequences. When you disobey God, immediate bad things will happen to you. I sinned and I suffered the repercussions of that sin. But that's not the only story to sin. Because when you choose to sin, especially those of us in leadership positions, pastors, moms, dads, heads of organizations, you know that your disobedience to God, it doesn't stop with you. There are implicit consequences that happen to the people around you. This is the reason why Jesus teaches in the New Testament that there is a heavier weight on teachers that teach the word of God. And if you're a false teacher, it would be better for you to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around your neck than to stand in the pulpit and preach things that are false. Why? Because teaching false things has direct implications on me as the teacher, but it also has implications on you as the students who are listening because you think this is right and then you go and do it. And those implicit consequences fall on my shoulders as well because I'm the one who led you astray. Are you following? This happens in the church level with the pastor. This happens in organizations. But it, it happens primarily at what God set up as the chasm for leadership, which is in the home. This happens most with dad and mom. Because dad, when you make poor choices, and disobey God, you will suffer some consequences to, to, with your sin before God. But you don't understand all of the consequences that will happen down the line to your children and to your wife when you refuse to follow God. Now, hear me. I am not saying that it is Jacob's fault that his daughter was sexually assaulted. But I am saying that Jacob's disobedience provided the atmosphere for things to go horribly wrong. Because it didn't end with his daughter. Because of what happened to his, da his daughter and because of his attitude towards her, her brothers took up the mantle of revenge and murdered an entire city. 
Let's go through the story, Genesis 34, verse one. Now, they've set up in Shechem, and Dinah, the daughter of Leah, that's interesting, the daughter of Leah, the wife Jacob didn't want. So we know, Jacob, he doesn't have fond feelings for the boys of Leah, or Leah, or his only daughter, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land, and when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And then his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. And Shechem spoke to his father saying, get me this girl for my wife. That's disgusting. And this is where Jacob chose to raise his family. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with the livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him, and the sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they had heard it. And the men were indignant and very angry. I'd, I'd say justly so. It's interesting, Jacob wasn't described as angry, but her brothers were, because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with him, saying, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. What? No, no, what? No, that's not, we're not, why are, am I the only one? What? No, that's not a thing we're doing. How are you gonna make this right? Where's the justice in this? Well, here's the justice. Women are essentially property. So let's trade. Here's his offer. Let's make marriages with us. Give us your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. And you shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it. Get property in it. What? Shechem also said to her father, and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. Oof. So the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because they had defiled their sister Dinah. And they said to him, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. So we want you to take the covenant of our, father, our grandfather Abraham, we want you to circumcise yourselves and that's the only way where it will be okay for us to give our sister to you in marriage. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become our people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Now I wanna pause right here before I go any further. This is kind of shocking and like I said, probably the first time I've ever heard something like this on a Sunday morning. I ran across this quote by an American novelist from the 1950s, her name is Flannery O'Connor, and she said, when you can assume that your audience holds the same beliefs you do, you can relax and use more normal means of talking about something. But when you have to assume that it does not, then you have to make your vision apparent by shock to the hard of hearing you shout 
and to the almost blind you draw large, startling figures. And I read that quote because I think that that is exactly what the writer of Genesis, who we think was Moses, was doing in including this story. Because this story doesn't mention God at all. What's the purpose of including this gore and senseless violence? Essentially what's gonna happen next. Well, he includes this because he's trying to draw startling figures to us. He wants us to understand that disobedience has consequences. The disobedience for Jacob was that he wasn't living in the town God told him to. He wasn't loving the kids that God gave him. He wasn't changing his behavior with his brother. He was still lying with him, uh, lying against him. And the consequences, his, 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 his daughter was assaulted and her brothers are about to seek revenge. Now let me finish the story for you in Genesis 34. So the boys tell the city, okay, what you have to do is you have to circumcise yourselves if you're gonna marry our sister. And everyone, every male in the city agreed to do it. That was the price of admission. You have to get circumcised. All the men are like, okay, we'll do this so that the prince can have the thing that he wants. So all of the men get circumcised. And um, three days later, while all the men of the city were recovering from surgery, two of Jacob's sons, snuck into the town and murdered every single man in the city as revenge for what they did against their sister. But it didn't stop there because as soon as they murdered every man in the city, the rest of the brothers showed up and plundered the entire city. They stole the gold, they stole the idols, they took everything of value out of the city and they kept it for themselves. They came back and Jacob found out what happened and Jacob was not happy and what Jacob essentially said was, you have brought trouble on us because of what you did. Now, the boys got revenge through manipulation. They said one thing and then did something else, but where did they learn that from? Their dad, the master manipulator. They used God's covenant as a way to manipulate people. So in some way they're in the wrong, but the truth is that Jacob's declaration that the brothers brought on trouble is not true entirely. It's Jacob who brought on the trouble. It's Jacob's disobedience that had lasting consequences. It's Jacob's disobedience that led to his daughter being assaulted and his boys becoming murderers. But also the way that he treated his family is gonna have dividends being paid off all the way up through Genesis 37 when those brothers who Jacob didn't really love, decided that the best way to get rid of the brother that Jacob did love was to sell him into slavery. You remember Joseph? That's coming next week. That wasn't a plan that was just hatched out of nowhere. That was years and years of watching dad treat Joseph different than everybody else. Refusing to love his children and lead his family well and only picking his favorite and excusing everybody else and pretending like they didn't exist. This attitude, even though God was changing Jacob, did not trickle down into his treatment of his children. And the point, as I said before, is that disobedience has consequences. But I think the bigger lesson here is that disobedience is very expensive. 
And if you're writing anything down today, this is what I want you to write down. Disobedience is very expensive. Now, that's not to say that obedience isn't expensive. Obedience will cost you. It will cost you that pride that says, I want to do this. It will rob you and take away that selfishness that says, I get joy from doing things my way. Obedience to God says, you can't have that anymore. Okay, I'm going to give it up. So obedience does cost things, but disobedience is always more expensive than obedience. And that's the lesson of Jacob. And the thing about it is that God always has his way anyway. So why not save yourself some pain? God's going to have his way anyway. So why walk in disobedience when you know there's going to be more pain through it and God's going to have his way anyway? Stop doing it. Uh, Solomon describes this way. It's like a dog returning to its own vomit. It's as disgusting imagery as we can get for what we do in choosing our way over God's way. Oh, but I just got to get back to having things my way. No. It's only causing you pain and more sickness, and God is going to have his way anyway. And that's exactly what happens in Genesis 35. After all of this nonsense, after all of Jacob being selfish and disobeying, guess what God does? He calls Jacob again. He doesn't forsake him. He calls him Again, Genesis 35, verse 1. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and dwell there. This is where you should be, where you should have been the whole time. Go up to Bethel. And there, make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So the altar that you made in the wrong town, go make it in the right town. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were there with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they, have, so they gave to Jacob all their foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. So Jacob called everybody to repentance and they got rid of all of their idols, everything they had plundered from Shechem. Verse five, and as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, which is Bethel, Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. He and all the people who were with him And there he built an altar and called it El Bethel because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bakath. God appeared to Jacob again and he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him and God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. You getting deja vu? Didn't this already happen once? This is God like bending down to Jacob and looking. He's like, hey, look at me in my eyes. Right here, right here. You're not Jacob anymore. You're someone different. Quit acting like who you used to be. And it's at this moment that Jacob really breaks. 
Because from this point forward, they don't even refer to him as Jacob anymore. They only refer to him as Israel. So he called his name Israel and God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come for you and kings shall come from your own body and the land that I've gained to Abraham, to Isaac, I will give to you and I will give the land to your offspring after you. And Jacob, or then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him and a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Now this is interesting. Because in this chapter, we have a lot of repeats, all right? God tells Jacob that his name's not Jacob, he's Israel. That already happened. Jacob builds an altar in Bethel. Well, that already happened. Jacob already called this place Bethel, but in verse 15, he says he called the place Bethel again. So we have all these repeats of stuff. Why are we seeing and reading the same thing over and over and over again? Because these things, though they happened once, had not happened since his experiences with Laban and his experience with his daughter and his experience with his sons seeking revenge. And the point is that sometimes, just like Jacob, we have to revisit a spiritual truth before it really, truly makes sense. This is the reason why we as a people of God reread scripture. Because as Christians, we have this attitude where we say, well, I know that, or I've read that. We sit down, you come to church, and you're like, oh, you know, we're gonna read, uh, you know, we'll read through John. Well, I've read John a couple times, okay. But have you read that with this new life experience that you have recently learned? Have you read this with a new learned truth that you picked up somewhere else that now sheds light and makes these things appear in a different light than they did before? Because the thing is, is that experiences and growth give us fresh eyes to revisit things that we already know. It is common for us to assume we know everything and all we have to do now is just apply it. But have you ever considered that the problem with applying it is that the first time you learned it, you didn't really pick it up, that it didn't really make sense? Has it ever dawned on you why for three years the disciples followed Jesus everywhere and heard him talk constantly? The Son of Man's gonna die and three days later he's gonna be raised from the dead. And as soon as he's put in the grave, everyone's like, oh, I don't know what we're gonna do. How about you wait three days? That's what he said. But it wasn't until after he rose from the dead that I was like, oh, that's what he meant. This is the reason, I'm convinced, this is the reason why Jesus is constantly telling the disciples, hey, after he heals somebody, hey, don't go tell anybody. Not even worth it. And when he sends the disciples out two by two to go cast out demons, he doesn't tell them to go preach the gospel. Why? Because they don't know what the gospel is. They don't even understand that he's going to raise from the dead three days later. They don't get it but they're hearing it from the horse's mouth for three years, and they still don't get it. It's not after the experience of actually watching the resurrection and seeing him face to face and having him walk through a wall and stand there and say, guys, come here, put your finger in the hole in my hand. And they're like, no, 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 I don't need to do that. And he's like, no, get over here and put your finger in the hole in my side. Why did he make, why did he make them do that? Why did Thomas have to do that? 
It's because that experience illuminated things that they had learned two years earlier. And now they were equipped to go preach the gospel. They didn't get it until they saw it. And some of us in here, you can sit in church for years and years and hear the thing, but until God in his mercy and his grace gives you this opportunity to experience one thing, that truth seems like it's behind a locked door. But the moment this happens, oh, that's what it meant. And that feeling right there, that's is what I want us to never get old. I don't, any, any of us, I don't want to ever lose the awe of that moment where something clicks. And I, I tell you, I can be like a junkie about it when I'm up here preaching, because I can see it in your, I can see it in your eyes. Some of you are just like, all right, when is this going to be over? Is he done anytime soon? And some of you are just like, and it's like, it clicks, and you're like, ah. Oh. For me, as a pastor, that never gets old. The moment something is unlocked and you're like, this changes everything, that never gets old. And if you, and if you never let that get old, if you still, even if you, you can be in your 70s, your 80s, if you never let that get old, but your, your heart will never stop burning for the Lord because he's never tired of changing you and shifting and modeling and rearranging things he never gets old. What, what happens is we get old. So what happens is that when we approach God and we revisit these new or these truths that we once knew, what we're saying by studying something we've read before is this isn't new, but I am. So open my eyes. Show me what I haven't seen before. That's why we study scripture we've read before. Now, as we finish Genesis 35, so we're going to Wrap up today, 16 through 29. Israel, who was Jacob, but is now Israel. He's a new man, but the residuals from his disobedience and his life of sin, they continue carrying on through his life. Tribulation doesn't stop just because he submits. His wife, by the end of chapter 35, dies, giving birth to another son named Benjamin. His oldest son, Reuben, sleeps with his stepmom, Bilhah, to ensure his mom's position. Now this is important, like this is, I'm only bringing this up because this is gonna come up later when uh, Jacob gives the prophecy to his boys. Reuben is gonna suffer for this decision. But Reuben's mom was Leah, right? So you have Leah and Zilpah, Leah's servant Zilpah, and you've got Rachel and Bilhah. Rachel dies, so you've got Bilhah. Leah has never been the favorite. So what does Reuben do, Leah's oldest son? He goes and he sleeps with his uh, I guess his stepmom, to dishonor her in her husband's eyes. So really all that's left is his mom. It was an act to ensure that his mom would have honor. Like how warped is this family that God is still choosing to love and bring a nation through? And finally, Jacob's father passes away. Isaac dies. So as we close this chapter, I want us to walk away with an understanding of just a few things. First, the relationship between disobedience and consequences. I want, it, I want us to be aware of the relationship between disobedience and consequences. We can think the disobedience just stands. As long as nobody knows, nothing will happen. There's nothing farther from the truth. You're lying to yourself. But beyond that, just between the relationship of disobedience and consequences, I also want us to walk away with an importance of living out what God says that you are. He's called you a son and a daughter, so you need to act like a son or a daughter. 
We have to walk out what we are called. There is no room in the kingdom of God for partial obedience and following Jesus. And we've said this before, I'll say it again. Partial obedience is no obedience. And since I've said that before, I'll say it in a different way. This is the best way I could describe it, and this is where we'll close. The person who is 50% Christian is 100% deceived. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.